Hey there, all you fans of stories, storytellers, and storytelling. This is Storytelling with Seth, and I am your host, Seth Singleton. There is an amazing feeling, so singular and unique, when you discover a great story. There is a feeling that is equally singular and unique and equally wondrous when a great story discovers you. That was my experience when I was introduced to Jaquintin Means and the story of Willie. Join me now for a great conversation with Jaquintin Means about the journey, both physical and spiritual, of a storyteller and of his novel, Willie. This is Storytelling with Seth, episode number 80. Hello and welcome to another episode of Storytelling with Seth. I'm your host, Seth Singleton, and I am really thankful that I get the chance to sit down with Jaquintin Means. And I'm thankful, one, because I had to reschedule our original call. And he was so gracious that we were able to set up a new call. And that's really important because I feel like we have a a great topic and I'm going to let him tell you more about it. So let me stop talking and allow you to meet. Jaquintin means. Jaquintin, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Uh, thank you for having me on. My pleasure. You really got my attention when you told me about your book and when you shared it with me so I could get a chance to read it. I was captivated. I, I can honestly say it was a page turner. I read it starting one afternoon and it was finished by the following morning. Um, I just dug in and, and really enjoyed every bit of it. Tell us, uh, please, if you would, the name of your book just a, a brief summary, synopsis, introduction to what we're going to be talking about today. The, the title of the book is Willie, um, and it is based off of a, what they call the Willie Lynch letter. Um, there's actually a book published called The Willie Lynch Letter, uh, A Making of a Slave. Um, and that document is very controversial. People don't believe that it's real. Some have said that a college professor actually had wrote that document and released it in the 80s, but... Um, once the 90s uh, kicked off and the internet got booming, then it kind of went viral. Um, and a lot of people were upset about it. And so this kind of all this controversy about the letter's authenticity came into question. But to me, it didn't matter if that letter was true or not, because I just believe that it was great social commentary. So the book, Willie, just really dives into um, not only the psychological damage that is done to slaves, to a human being, to make them able to uh, be a good slave, but also the loss of morals and what the, psycho- what the psychological toll it takes on the master as well and the master's children. And then kind of like this um, in the context of uh, how do we rise above racism? What is racism? Why is racism? Why, why was it created? How does it affect us today? And how did it affect us then? And what... Um, was the reasons behind racism allowing slavery to work the way that it did in America. That's not an easy letter, subject, content to unpack. There's a a lot of threads going on there and a lot of uh, connections that they seem to, you know, um, bind all of it together so completely. How did you come across this letter? What was your first introduction to uh, the Willie Lynch letter and its impact? And then sort of like from that moment to what became the, the concept for the book? Where did you first discover the letter? And, and what can you tell us about that first interaction or, or what it meant when you discovered it? 
So I had um, actually had heard about it my own my whole life because it's pretty big in in black culture, um, but I had never read it myself. So the original title Willie was going to be Run Boy Run, and it was going to be about um, two brothers, a house slave and a field slave coming together and and you know just kind of running running slavery, run away from slavery, and kind of the story of like just life on the run for slaves. And then along my research of studying slave history, I came across the William Lynch letter again, and then being old enough to understand what it was saying and studying enough and having enough, you know, knowledge outside of the letter uh, to give me more context, that inspired me to not only change the name of the story, but to go into a lot more depth of what it meant um, to be locked under mind control and how to fight against mind control. And when I first read it, I was like, I don't think anyone can read that letter and not be emotional, regardless of what side of the fence you're on. I, I think it's very hard to read it and not be emotional, regardless if it's real or not. Cause like I said, I think it's just really good social commentary. Um, but I was just, uh, it made perfect sense. And then when I looked out at the world around me and I, I looked at how, you know, the old, treats the young I look at human nature and at times we are so separated from our normal human nature um, just by how we treat each other and you know treat each other with decency and respect then it was like oh well you know maybe this is not something that was just used against black slaves maybe this is something that was used against all of us as a whole of society you know American society as a whole um, that this can work in a you know multiplicity of different ways um, and that is kind of why Willie took the shape that it did. I was exposed to an excerpt of the Willie Lynch letter. And that was back when I was in college, which now seems like a lifetime ago. And I remember being just in the excerpt moved by the fact that it was a history teacher who wanted us to get a context for history. They wanted us to get mm -hmm. a, a sense and what I also felt was really powerful about reading that was that I agree with you that it seemed to be not just, I mean, it was clear that there was racism evident in the document, but the document also seemed to be a ruling class document, an idea right. that would have been important for if you go back to the fiefdom days or fiefdom days in Europe, where there was mm -hmm. lords and manners, the idea of you are in charge, how do you keep other people submissive to you. This is how you put down um, all hope. And this is how you eliminate these ideas from even being part of their daily life, if you can break them down to a certain point. And I remember being shocked by this idea, because it, it seemed like so much of what was also, you know, growing up in the, uh, I mean, my high school years were in the 90s, when bands like Rage Against the Machine were challenging mm -hmm. you to read more, be more aware of, uh, you know, uh, corporate complicity and, you know, a silent group that's ruling and a, a lot of different ideas like that. And this seemed to just like match with it perfectly where I thought to myself, okay, okay we've got a document that can be used in so many different ways. I, I love that you brought up the idea of the multiplicity of it. So then mm -hmm. taking, you know, that, that introduction to it and also out of curiosity, because I had never been exposed to it um, until college, what was the, you know, sort of like understanding you had before you read it? Because you said it's something that's um, known and I guess maybe discussed as well in Black culture, that it's, it's 
Right. It's not something that's unknown. So uh, can you give us a context for how it's known or how you knew of it before actually reading the letter? I, I had always thought of it in regards to being specifically geared towards black people. Um, light skin versus dark skin was a big one um, that we see, and, you know, and even in times when I was in high school, I remember we had the light skin, dark skin, like wars, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just like a, it might just been like a social media tongue in cheek type of thing. Um, but it kind of showed you like this idea of colorism too. Um, so I had always thought of Willie as being a document for colorism, um, not so much as psychological warfare to the extent that I understand it today. Does that make sense? Well, it does actually. Um, I'm really, I'm so thankful for the people that I've been lucky enough to meet. And when someone has a great message, so I have a friend named Dr. Sarah Webb. Um, she has a website called Colorism Healing. And I don't know if you've heard of it, but I would encourage you to take a peek because her whole purpose is to address and analyze what colorism is, where it comes from, how it is still able to be in um, practice today. And Mm -hmm. she's, I mean... She is a very vibrant voice when she, I mean, her message on social media, she has no problem taking on anyone who challenges what she's talking about, bringing up the ideas of uh, this, this, that, excuse me, the systemic process of colorism. So I, I love that you brought that idea because it reminds me so much of what I've read from her. I've had her on on a, a few occasions and her understanding and her ability to analyze something that she first, I mean, her whole process starts out that she remembers being a kid and she remembers seeing another girl and saying out loud, wow, she dark. And then it just sort of registered in her head. Like, what does that mean? Like, why did I, why did I, you know, identify her in that way? And through a lot of self-discovery, she's been exploring this man, it's, it's what she's unearthed is, is extremely powerful. And I feel it's so important because I think it ties into a lot of what the Willie Lynch letter also touches on as well. And also how you're, you know, able to point to a moment when you could recognize it, you know, in high school, when there was like, you know, sure, social media tug in cheek, but there was also like a, an atmosphere of it, I'm guessing that would be existing, you know, just in the the physical day to day, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm very light skinned myself. I'm, I'm very, very light skinned. And I got picked on all throughout childhood uh, for being so light skinned. So I used to tell people like I was always um, too light to be black and too black to be uh, too black to be white. So like, and so when I got older and I saw that, you know, the, the thing on like the thing going around on social media um, and then hearing about the wheel inch later, then I started putting two and two together and it's like, oh, this is a psychological war to make us point out our differences, even though we're the same people, you know, like kind of a divide and conquer sort of thing. Definitely. Like create the reasons behind which differences can be, you know, demonstrated or illustrated or almost like here, this is why it's different. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, okay, if you're going to point it out in that way, sure, you can find the differences there. Um, but, you know, it almost, <laughs> it feels like clearly there's a reason behind it. It's like, well, you're not just pointing this out because you think it's something that's interesting or you something you want me to know. It's, you're pointing it out for a reason, uh, positive or negative, you're, you're illustrating that. So tell me now how we, how we take this, you know, 
understanding of the letter, then reading of the letter, and then the process from, you know, when you read it to when the book, you can tell us best, what happened from reading the letter to when the book started? The, then the book just kind of evolved. Um, Cause then it wasn't so much about racism anymore. It became a story of how we're all enslaved, not just the blacks. Like, and then it was like, okay, well, instead of me focus on just black slavery, I need to show how the overseer, how the Irish overseer was enslaved. I need to show how the master's children were enslaved. I need to show how the master himself was enslaved. Um, and then maybe through me trying to paint this picture to my fellow Americans or my fellow human beings, you know, just as a whole, um, that we're all enslaved to some form of system. Um, now that we're aware that we're slaves of these systems, you know, we might be playing different roles, you know, in the machine, but if we can understand that, be aware of it, and now we, we leave that old paradigm behind and leave the whole idea of control and manipulation behind, then maybe we can create a more beautiful future together. Um, so I know some people will probably read my book and think I'm, you know, trying to be just like black, 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 um, are just, you know, overly, uh, cause there's been so many slave movies and so many, you know, slave books and things, um, come out that I'm just trying to harp on that same, you know, really negative bringing up old history terms. But to me, I believe as an American, that we need to understand where we come from and why we react to each other the way that we do, especially in regards to racism, so we can overcome it. So it's like, we can't end racism, systemic racism as we see it today, if we don't understand how it was used against all of us, you know, poor white people in general, you know, poor immigrants in, you know, in general, like it was used against all of us in some way, form or fashion to separate us to keep us away from each other. Therefore, we couldn't come to, together and create the beautiful you know, future that we imagined for us all. Um, so that's why I kind of took that type of shape for me. Cause I just kind of saw it as like you said before, it's like, um, like they used the same thing in feudalism. Um, I just saw it as a tool that was used to take advantage of everyone. And even like, as you know, from the Will Lynch letter, like there's a hierarchy, like this goes through the, the realm of hierarchy and different things. Um, that keeps that machine going. Um, so it just, my message in the book, every moment when I was writing, every situation, every scene, I'm in my mind, I'm just, how do I show how everyone that's taking part is the bad guy and how we are all kind of slaves to circumstance? Well, I really felt like the element of control was being demonstrated in the book. And I love the fact that you brought up the Irish character who there was a time when the Irish were viewed unfavorably for being immigrants coming to the United States. Um, and how even in this process, you can demonstrate that because of what he needs, which is a, a job and a livelihood, he's willing to subject himself to whatever the terms of the, the man who, Mr. Moore, who owns the uh, plantation, who runs the plantation, who uh, is sort of a newer face in the community, but, it, you know, has that sort of, uh, sense of it's not just entitlement but that sense of position of authority and right. how he's able to use that to then subjugate 
not only um, the Irish character, but the slaves and, and put in this system that oppresses all of them. It has varying degrees, but the idea is I'm in charge and this system allows me to control all of you. You know, I control each of you different way, but by creating divisions and then using that as an implement for control, I'm the guy in charge. And all the way down, everyone feels that effect. Mm -hmm. Even his own daughter. Exactly. Another great example. You know, it's not something that just goes to the, you know, the people who quote unquote work for him or ruled by him, but it also goes to the family who are also under his rule, his daughter, who is not just encouraged, but told, this is what you will be. This is how you will act. This is what you will do. You Mm -hmm. will live according to these terms. And um, yeah, so your systems of control, I thought it was really well organized and displayed all the way through. Um, And I think it's really important to keep in mind that you were working at that process of showing like, look, this, this is an idea that, you know, yes, we're talking about racism, but we're also talking about control. We're also talking about how, you know, a system of oppression is put in place and, and who it affects. And I think that ties really well back to what you were saying earlier about history. You know, we're, we're doomed to repeat it if we're not willing to learn from it, if we're not willing to study it, if we're not willing to understand it, we're doomed to repeat cycles and avoid this beauty that you've described that is possible, but only if we're willing to recognize what a system of control is, how it's used and where it still exists today, because I think that's also extremely important. I was really moved by this novel. I was wondering, since we've already talked about the fact that you've got, um, you know, an Irish character who can, you know, demonstrate the system of control, this would be a great chance for us to move into the characters because you started the book, you're doing research, you discover the Willie Lynch letter. Now you're developing the book after that. Tell me about the characters and how they were part of that, you know, process of taking the letter, what you were learning from that and other research and then using it for this different direction the book was now taking. Um, so what was cool was a lot of the characters are based off of real people. And so I've changed the names to protect those people. Cause I, I just don't, I mean, obviously I didn't live back in 1800, so I don't know how these people actually were, um, but it's based off of a man named Elijah Worthington and his son um, who the character John is based off of was James W. Mason um, who was college educated abroad, um, also studied at Oberlin College, um, was a two-time senator, was a sheriff, um, fought the, um, he fought the Supreme Court over land laws when the, you know, carpetbaggers came in to take over the plantation. Um, so to me, like developing these characters, I had, it wasn't too hard because I had all these real people to kind of build from. Um, even the Irish overseer character, in my own history, my family came from an Irish overseer falling in love with a slave and uh, running away to Arkansas. Um, so my last name is Means, but the original name was McMeans. I mean, it was changed um, so they could be more American. So I was really uh, blessed in regard um, to Arkansas just has so much rich culture and history um, and then mixed with my own background. Um, and I was also a minister, too. So, you know, another character, Thomas, um, and, and parts of John, too, as well, um, as you know, since you've read the book, um, that came from my ministry background. You know, one of the characters um, is very religious, but, you know, when the cookie crumbles, when the pressure is on, 
um, even though the, her circumstances are horrible, he still does not do what he knows is the right thing and it torments him, but yet he still claims to worship a God. And, you know, if you notice, um, that's kind of a theme in the early part of the book is like, oh, you know, all these people claiming God, but are they really serving God? And then you have another character, John, who is troubled by his belief in God at times um, and sees how religion is kind of like this double-edged sword, uh, which I noticed when I was a minister myself. Um, it could be used for good. And if you know anything about Christian history, um, it can be used for horrible, atrocious evil as well. So it's like, how do you take all of these different themes? And these themes were going on throughout um, slave history with the great revivals in the Methodist church and, you know, them teaching slaves uh, Christianity so they would be more docile and believe that they weren't supposed to be free, that they were supposed to obey their masters and, you know, and their rewards is going to come in heaven um, and that they would even go to hell if they were bad slaves. Um, and so it was just like so many different life. Ex it was a mix of just life experience the beauty of, you know, knowing Arkansas history and the beauty of, you know, my own life experiences and, and my own family history. Okay. So this is one of those moments where I got to say, you're making my job too easy. Um, because <laughs> you really did a wonderful thing there, which was to not only introduce a great element of personal history that you could draw from, but my, my next question would be to move into something that I'm sure folks are always interested in, which is who is the person telling this story? And that was going to be my, you know, next sort of transition. But as you were describing your family history, I was like, what? And he was a minister. This is just too easy. Like, come on, of course I'm going to move into your personal history because I think so much of that would um, be like really valuable for people to know your personal journey. Like, who is Jaquinta Means? And you've already highlighted now this, this great example from your family history. And I, I love that you were able to draw on the wealth of history that exists in Arkansas. I think it would be really uh, a fun thing now for folks to sort of know, like, what can you give us your, your biography? Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, your, your path to ministry and any of those other things we can kind of know about you, because I feel like so many of that has layers that, that work so wonderfully into the book as you've described it and maybe other layers that we haven't heard about yet. Um, yeah. Uh, born and raised in Arkansas. I still live here. Uh, I still live in Arkansas. I was raised in the church. My grandmother, um, my gr I wouldn't say my grandmother was quote unquote a religious person, but she definitely loved the church and she loved serving the church. Um, and so I was just always there. And I, for some reason, when I was young, um, I just always understood the Bible very well. And just, I was always, you know, when I was 10 and 11, I'm in the, you know, senior class. When I'm a senior, I'm in the adult class uh, type of a thing. So when I kind of came of age and had believed I had answered a lot of questions about religion, I kind of left Christianity behind and studied the Bible for myself for a few years and just really felt called, you know, as we, that's a term we use in the church, uh, called the ministry. Um, I just felt called to do it. And um, I did it for two and a half years in the Methodist church. Um, wrote my own Bible study curriculum, um, revived the youth ministry that was there. Um, I was not a college student, but the, the church was on the college campus. And fun fact about the church, uh, more just going into like this kind of history of, that inspired the book. Uh, the church was there before the end of slavery, and it actually 
the school Philander Smith College was in a, which is a uh, historical black college in Arkansas, was built out of slaves teaching people how to read and write in the church. And then a Methodist minister, you know, and his wife donated money and had this school kind of built out of the church. Um, so I was a part of us sending documents to the National Archives to be protected. So that was, you know, beautiful for me because, you know, just another example of like me being exposed to this rich Arkansas history. And so I did that for two and a half years and I love doing it. Um, but I just, I'm not a religious person. As I've kind of said, I'm a very spiritual person, but I'm not a religious person. And I believe just like that, my beliefs were starting to clash with the church. And I love, I mean, it was the most natural thing that ever came to me was serving in the church, um, writing sermons, uh, preaching, teaching. I mean, it just all came very natural to me. Um, so once I left, I'm like, how can I still share my love for all these things and encourage people and move them in a, an emotional way um, to kind of incite change um, in my own world? And that's when I was like, oh, well, all these great authors, I was already kind of a writer, but I had not written a novel or anything. At that point, I was only reading like, uh, writing like prose and uh, poetry. I hadn't really fully thought about, you know, storytelling in that way yet. Um, I had aspirations of doing it, but hadn't done it. And I was like, okay, well, why don't you take all these things and put them in a way that not only allows you to share your love for history share your love for, you know, religious context and spiritual things, but also gives us a message of hope, um, a message that we can come together as human beings, you know, in quote unquote Christ love and make a difference in this world and create the world that we want. Um, and that's my background leading up to now. <laughs> <laughs> That's really perfect, man. Um, and I, I do appreciate the fact that you brought up the church and religion as they connect to your book and also to your personal story. I, I grew up in the church. My, my father grew up going to tent revivals. His family was uh, cotton pickers in Fresno who'd come from the Oklahoma Dust Bowl and were just always, that was their job. They were field hands. That was what they did. And one of the big staples he taught me about was being a kid being dragged to revivals for like 16 mm -hmm. hours. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I grew up in a, a pretty strict Pentecostal environment, but it, it's also something that as I got older, I became more aware of its history. And I think you brought up something really important, which is that you were able to not only use your personal history, which is, um, your process of becoming a minister of, of working uh, with the text, but then to use that idea, not only for a character, but then to show through more and the minister, how religion can be a system of control as well. It's got a mm -hmm. message that can be tailored. And by using specific verses, you know, you were able to demonstrate that this was not only something that occurs in the book, but it's based on history. And then you've got this great history uh, with the church that you were actually in. That's all stuff that I, I soak up immediately. And I'm pretty sure anybody listening who's a fan of stories like that can understand the relevance now of your personal history, the history that you were able to uncover, and, and how it informs the book. Now, folks, I'm going to be honest, I've read the book, so I understand a little bit more. When you read the book, these connections are going to be stronger for you, too. But I, I think it's really important also your process, because as you came through, you actually 
took on the responsibilities of a minister and became that involved before eventually stepping away and then using that understanding to then craft this novel. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, cause I had read, I was reading, uh, Harry Beecher Stowe's uncle Tom's cabin, diary of a slave girl. I actually read that Frederick Douglass autobiography. I was watching all types of slave movies and I was thinking to myself, you know, this has, this has been done before. Um, and I, the more I paid attention to those, I feel like no one, at least I feel like most writers feel like this, like no one has quite shed light on it as everyone being enslaved. Um, yes, we see the moral dilemmas of, in these stories of white people with morals um, that want to help blacks and they do help blacks are, you know, we hear about the, the slave rebellions and them building up enough courage to set themselves free. We hear about the runaways, but we don't hear about how white people and the black people were both enslaved psychologically. Like, yes, one wore whips and chains and was picking cotton, but the other one was poor. And as, at point in times, especially when, you know, uh, from Frederick Douglass's um, autobiography, he was fed better than a lot of the poor white kids that he was learning to read from. And so it's like, not only did the system help to enslave blacks, which is very external, very easy for us to notice, we're not looking at how it also put white people in a form of slavery because there's not all the jobs that the slaves are working are the jobs that the white men should be working in and getting paid, you know, a good wage for, you know, the African slaves shouldn't even be here. It should be white people here working the fields for, you know, a boss. Like it shouldn't be all this manipulation. And then the whole pitting against blacks and whites and how do you reconcile that? How do you, how do you bridge that gap between you're the one with the whip on my back and the white man being like, well, yeah, I'm, you're, I'm, I have this whip and I'm whipping you, but I don't know the master. I don't know where my next meal, I, if I don't whip you, I, I can't eat. You know, I, we don't, I don't feel like any story has really gone into that, that narrative. Like a lot of times when we read these books, everyone's either victimized or they're the villain. We never take, um, as as I like to say, you know, the skirt off of it or the magnifying glass and look in between the lines and to see what's really going on, not only on a black and white scale, but an economic scale and a psychological scale. And I believe to me, whereas a lot of other slave stories could at times be divisive um, and at times make people feel guilty um, and hopeless, that this story instead gives you that idea of what can I do different now? Um, yes, this happened in the past. And yes, I can see things from this past that affect me now. So what can I do about it today? And I try to incorporate, like I said before, like just that idea of hope that is not, slavery is not something that's past tense that's gone and is over with. We're still dealing with the effects. So let's take learning from the story Look at our world today, be honest with ourselves, be honest with each other, bridge that gap, and then start seeing how we can work through some of this pain and get honest with each other so we don't have to be at each other's throats all the time. So I don't have to be afraid of a white person because he's white, and a white person doesn't have to be afraid of me because I'm black. And I just felt like that was like so important that needed to be said that I, I haven't felt like had been um, expelled upon enough in those movies and books.
Well, I think the system of oppression, the the concept of control that you're you know talking about, is something that I I felt was really clear in your book, mm-hmm. and it was something that I felt was really valuable because it it created this sense um, throughout the entire story once that was addressed of everyone working sort of against their own desires because there's something else that's saying you're going to do what you're told whether you want to or not and it it trickles down all the way and yet you also give that sense of hope because after there's been this establishment of how things are and what that history has been up to a certain point we finally get a moment of change and you talked about how once you got over that that period where you had to really dig into the the deep parts, the dark parts, the hard parts, you were able to then come out on the other side of it and start talking about a different direction. Can I ask, Mm -hmm. what were the hard parts in writing this book? You know, you've now had the chance to take what you've been loving to do, which is to, to write, put it into a project that you're passionate about. You've now researched, but that doesn't mean that writing it is going to necessarily be easy. You know, getting all the pieces together for a recipe, that's one thing. But when you're combining them to certain things and temperatures, you, you know, to make it work right, it, it takes a lot of work. Um, right. What were the hard parts in this book for you? Were there any difficulties where you found yourself going, this is emotional, this is a challenge because of the content, or this is an important message and I want to make sure I get it so right that you you know you sweat over it until mm-hmm. you know you've just worked it to uh until it can't be worked anymore so what were the hard parts in this book um the 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 writing of the book came more natural to me than i honestly expected um but i was not prepared for i was depressed uh, it took me this was a three-year project the first year and a half throughout um as you know, since you read the book, um, throughout the part one and part two, um, I was extremely depressed. The research I was doing, being in the mind of the characters, imagining all of that pain and suffering um, that went on and the psychological, like just, just thinking like the master, just thinking like the, bu- the abused slaves, you know, just thinking like putting myself in that, that mindset. And then also living i feel like you know for a year and a half i wouldn't say i lived as a slave but i you know my external my external world obviously is the present but in my internal world i was living in the 1800s um so i was noticing similarities from the society back then to the society now and then the question raises how much has things really changed um and that really um messed with me on a major scale and, I, and of course, I live in the Deep South, so I think anyone, you know, in America that understands anything about the Deep South understands exactly, you know, where I'm coming from when I say these things. Uh, so that was just, it was really hard on me. I was very emotionally distressed. And I, I remember it was a time period, thank God for my wife and my family and friends, where I was just like depressed and trying to figure out why was I so depressed. And my friends that had read the, you know, certain parts, because, you know, you bounce ideas off people. They're like, well, Jay, if you pay attention to what the hell you write, I mean, I'm sorry. If you pay attention to what you're writing, you you would understand why you're depressed. And the more and more I got to dealing with that, I was like, yes. And I remember when I finally got over the hump of like the last very dark thing, I just had this 
immediate feeling of relief. And I was just like, oh, it's like a, a big exhale. And I could just feel all that weight just kind of wash away. Would I do it again? Of course. I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely going to write another part. So I'm going to do it again. I think it's rewarding work. I mean, in the, in the end, and I definitely believe it's necessary. I'm just grateful that now I'm more prepared for it. So I see it coming. But yeah, it, it just took a deep emotional tax on me, like I said, for a full year and a half. I can only imagine. Was there something that you found once you realized how it was affecting you that could give you like a, some catharsis, some way that you could take what was going on and then turn around and know that there was something that was restorative or uplifting or, or something that you could do in response to that? Because it's almost like you're creating a, a burden that you're carrying with you, the, the weight of this knowledge and the, the weight of the emotion. I mean, you're familiar with Christian imagery as well. So, you know, mm-hmm. there's always that idea if you're carrying around all of your sins in a bag on your back, how heavy it can be. Well, there's the things we choose to carry with us, right? And, and right. through this research, you're picking up so many different elements, so many um, different experiences that are emotionally like a burden. Was there any way you could find some release from that once you could recognize where it was coming from? Or was it just something you had to work through until, like you said, you got over that hill? Um, it, I, I kept reminding myself that this story is also a story of redemption. And so I kept having that in the back of my mind, like, yeah, it's hard for you to write this now, but remember remember that you're also writing a story of redemption, but also remember why you are writing this book. You're not writing this book for people to get stuck in the evils of history. You're writing this book so we can be inspired to create a better future. And so me having that in the back of my mind, and once those hard parts were done, then it was more like, oh, okay, you you know where you're doing this. It is hard. It is rough, but maybe this is what is necessary to get enough people, you know, regardless of how people feel about it, feel about the story, if they like it, if they think it's completely horrible, if they think it's the best thing they read, they think it's the worst thing they read. I knew that they would feel something because I'm feeling something as I'm writing it. Regardless if it's for good or for evil, they're feeling something. I mean, I know my intention is for us to come together, not to separate us. So that really kind of got me over that hump. Man, it's... That's really encouraging to hear just because it was that sort of reminder, the reason why you're doing something, you know, sometimes, I mean, writing itself can be hard work and knowing that the reason you're doing it is so you can complete the book so you can finish telling the story. Uh, But knowing the importance behind why you're going through this. I'm also curious too. uh, It reminds me for a time period, I taught through a uh, upper bound program. Are you familiar with upper bound? Yeah. I used Um, to play basketball for upper bound. Oh, wow. Hey, uh, <laughs> I was involved with the, the in uh, Oakland, California, there's a Mills College, and they had an upward bound program. And I was one of the English instructors there. And one of the books that I was encouraged to sort of teach early on was the Frederick Douglass, the narrative mm-hmm. life of a slave. Uh, I was curious also just how you felt about writing the book. And you, know, you mentioned that there have been a, um, there, there is a category of books that have been written that autobiographical that are historically based that are research that that cover that period you were adding to that was there something you knew specifically that that you were adding to through your book or that you were maybe shedding light on or introducing or that you were aware of when you were working on it you know just the knowledge of the fact like there there are books that have told stories from this period of time 
But with my book, this is something specific I'm trying to tell, either something I haven't seen or something I think bears repeating or, or something else about that. Yeah. Tell us just a little bit, if you can sort of hint for people, what, what comes next? You know, this idea that you've, you've shown how hard it can be and the challenges and the history, but suddenly things change. And because of it, there's a new possibility and we get to see some characters break away and create potentially a new life. Mm -hmm. Well, the Civil War happens next and there's a lot of dynamics with the Civil War, um, especially in Arkansas. Um, Arkansas was kind of split 50-50 uh, between the Union and the Confederacy. And there was a lot of black regiments um, there was a lot of racism inside the army in the union. There was a lot of just poor people wanted to protect their land that didn't want to participate at all, being abused by both the Confederates and the union. And a lot, and at times you would find poor whites and, and runaway slaves banding together to protect each other. Um, because at this point they both saw that it was the machine that was the enemy and not each other. Um, so I'm going to expound more on that and kind of like how, yeah, by circumstance, we are being, you know, thrown to rely on each other. But what is it going to take for us to actually build together? Because it's one thing for me to be with you because it's a necessity to survive. There's another thing for me to actually see you as my equal and to begin to build with you and work with you. So the, the, second, the second part of the next book is going to be more on that and just dealing with more of the history of the Civil War the evils of the war and um, different narratives of how, you know, people are, I forget the word when you go AWOL, um, deserters. Mm -hmm. And from deserters, you know, basically being treated like slaves and on the run just as much as the slaves are that, you know, are trying to make the best of the war, you know, kind of taking part and kind of working on that dynamic as well. I love that idea too. What do we do and what are we willing to do if we have to work with each other? And then what changes right. when it becomes a choice when you're actually choosing to do that and when you're doing it for a different motivation or a different need or a different reason. Um, and right. that brings up something great. There's a second book because you end this book on a cliffhanger. And as yes. I was powering along, suddenly I went, oh, <laughs> Wait a minute, like we were building to, oh, and it's a good cliffhanger, folks. I'm not going to spoil it for anybody. I'm not here to ruin things. I am here to say it's a, it's a great cliffhanger. Was there a decision made on that where you at a point where you were like, I need to find a breaking point because this story is actually going to move into a whole second book and start to address a lot of those ideas you were just talking about? Or was there another process? Basically, how did you decide where to stop choosing a cliffhanger and the fact that this was just part one of your story? Um, I had known before I had started writing, when I first started doing my research, I had knew that there was way too much story to tell um, to put it all in one book. And me and my wife actually had a discussion. We, we debated for like weeks on if it should be multiple books, if it should be one book, two books, and I was like, well, I, I just feel like there's three different eras that happened throughout that period of slavery at its highest point, the Civil War, and the Reconstruction. And all of these people are still alive during this whole period of, you know, 30 years. 
um, that are just completely shaped American culture as we know it today. And so I was like, well, you know, I would be much better off if I just separated it up. And so people can digest it better that way and digest it the way that I kind of digested it. Um, and another thing I was inspired by, um, I cannot, I cannot remember the guy's name, but he wrote the name of the wind and his books. I, I was really inspired by the way he wrote it. I was also inspired by, uh, C.S. Lewis and the space trilogy. And I just loved how he rolled into each one of his books. And that kind of gave me the inspiration to stop the book the way that I stopped it. Cause it was a big one. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I, I was really just, you know, thinking to myself, like, okay, so where do we go from here? And I love that you've already set that up for me. And if you've read this book, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, I've given you yet another reason to pick it up and give a read so you can know what's coming or get a sense of what the cliffhanger is. And also using that information, what you can kind of hope or wish for when uh when you're thinking about what the second book is going to be like do you can you tell us about where you're at in the second book how soon maybe folks can expect it or or uh anything else any details folks might want to um, know about for that second book i've been i uh, also study um symbolism and esoteric things um so i've literally just finished this book got it published and i've just been working on uh, marketing promoting it um and getting my other getting my house in order so to speak um because i'm a writer full-time now so it's just uh getting all my bearings set down and then um i'm gonna take off on the second one but i it definitely will not take near as long as the first book I, i'm hoping to at least have it out in another year and a half if i'm lucky then i'll get it out faster than that Oh, that's great. That's, <laughs> that's really good news, man. Um, and that's got to be a great feeling, you know, knowing what you've accomplished, what you're about to do, and that sensation of this is what it's going to be. This is how long it's going to take. I've, I've got a plan. Like, I can already sort of see that. Curious, too, then, for anyone who knows that they're going to have time to read it between now and then, where should they go to find it? Where is it currently available? What are the the ways that they can track down uh, you, the book, and, and maybe see, you know, what else you're writing in between the first book and the next one. You can easily find this one on Amazon um, by typing in Willie um, and my name, Jaquentin Means, um, and it will pop up. Um, you can also find it at my website, thewonderingalchemist.com. Um, and you can find that book and my Willie and my first book on the wonderingalchemist.com. The wonderingalchemist.com is also a blog um, with my esoteric studies. And there's also a free story that I've been writing um, that's free to anyone that goes to my website called The Last Prince of Atlantis that is more of a historical fantasy, if that's even a genre. But that, that book's very interesting as well. Uh, that story is very interesting as well. You can find me on Facebook at Jaquentin Means. You can find me on Instagram on at JQ underscore means. Um, you can find me on TikTok at The Warning Alchemist. All those places. I'm, I'm always monitoring them all and looking for feedback from anyone. So 
Man, that's great. Uh, I love that folks now know where they can find more about you, where they can find access to the book so they can get it. The fact that there's a free story out there that all they have to do is go check you out. And that's something they can check out. I was also curious just because I was thinking about the fact that, you know, there seems to be a period where a new work will come out to highlight a, a period in time or illustrate something new about history. Recently, I'm a huge comic book fan and I also get the chance to hang out with some really great uh, guys on a couple of podcasts and one of the projects that really shook and moved a lot of people was the uh, HBO Watchmen project. It, oh yeah. It, it had a lot of um, you know expectation from comic book fans because it's dealing with something that's relatively sacred which is Alan Moore wrote the Watchmen book in 86 and he claims uh, that his whole purpose was to destroy the concept of superheroes through this book and that it was supposed to be a closed circuit, beginning, middle, and nothing else. And since then, mm -hmm. with DC owning the rights, they've done some projects, some well-received, some not so. And then Watchmen series came out. And it wasn't until the first episode that I realized what a completely different direction Damon Lindia was taking with this and also how he was showing us that there's parts of history that sometimes they get glossed over, they get forgotten, they get removed from history books. But when we see them, you know, retold, represented again, and we're, we're reminded of these compelling moments in history. And I think you, you really did a great job early at the beginning of this talking about how we need to understand how that history informs who we are now that what we research, what we learn about can show us things that are maybe not that different now. Just because I, I think it's a really great connection and I'm curious to get your insight. What was, yeah, because I heard you say, oh yeah. <laughs> what was your response to Watchmen? Have you seen it? What did you think on its uh, take on Tulsa and um, its, its ability to show us so much through that narrative of, of one family's history? And I, I haven't got to watch uh, The Watchmen yet, so I'm going to watch okay. it now that we've brought it up. I'm a huge fan of the first Watchmen, and I just loved everything about it. I mean, there's nothing I don't think was not to love about it. Um, and I remember the controversy about the HBO, but I never wa actually watched it myself. And I actually love that the main actress, too. Um, I'm a huge fan of hers, uh, Regina King. Um, yes. So, yeah, I'm definitely – yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of hers, too. Um, I just haven't taken the time to watch it yet, but I'm going to now, 100%. Well, you're busy writing. <laughs> so true, there's a lot to be forgiven with that. But I was curious because it, it does bring up the, the Tulsa riots. And it was mind-blowing for me. The, the, the entire yes. series was, was really phenomenal. Um, I, and I, I know a lot about the Tulsa. I did a lot of research on the Tulsa riots because um, I was researching the KKK and um, – and I actually went to Tulsa and took my, my wife to the museum there because I had educated her on it and she had never known about it. So it was like kind of mind-blowing for her to, to go there and kind of see like all this history and what all happened there because it's, it's a story that's kind of, to me, been, you know, just completely washed out of history um, until present day. Because I remember three years ago I was talking about nobody knew about it, but now I feel like is a major theme of everything that's going on right now. It, it really is. It's something that I was lucky to have a history teacher uh, when I was going through college. And actually it was at, when I was putting myself through community college, just getting my basic stuff done. And she was a 
really powerful uh, figure regarding the dates and facts of history. And I remember she, she said something I'll never forget, which was the dying words of Frederick Douglass were resist, 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 which is like, you know, when a teacher can say something to you 20 years ago and I'm still remembering it verbatim. Uh, but I remember mm-hmm. that she would bring up these moments in history and she'd say, you won't hear about this. History is choosing to forget it. It's chosen, it's chosen to not include it as a relevant period. But it was something that I remembered then suddenly when I'm watching Watchmen and it's bringing, it's showing me these moments and I'm like, oh my gosh, I haven't, I haven't heard this since, <laughs> since right. I was in a history class and someone else was showing me that this was one of those uncovered pieces. Uh, I'm, I'm really intrigued also because something that you might get a kick out of is that the show discusses a secret order. And that's something that, yes, yeah, you're going to love it. Um, I'll only give you one hint, and the word is Cyclops. And you'll go from there and discover more uh, when you get a chance to see it. But it also allows me to come back to something that you you hint at. And I, I was lucky enough to know some people who really immersed themselves in the esoteric. And right. they followed some, you know, self-published authors who have some very interesting ideas about symbols, um, how they have been used throughout history, how they're still being used now. And there's a couple of moments with James Moore where I feel like he's connected to something that's part of an order, that's part of a secret society. It feels like it's, you know, uh, it's not so quickly turned as something like Illuminati or the Masons or other groups. And yet at the same time, it, it has all those elements that you would expect from a secret group. Any thoughts you'd like to share just a little bit about that element if it comes back later? Uh, it's going to, oh. that's going to be a, a, a theme constantly running in the background, 100%. One, the, like I said, many of the characters are based off of real people. And that was the big theme that was happening here throughout that time, most definitely throughout that time. And even in the creation of America, I mean, America, most of the founding fathers were Freemason. Um, and there's numerous secret societies, but yeah, so I, I just, I wanted to add in that kind of element and it'll be forever in the background. Um, and I kind of teased it in there to where anyone that was truly paying attention would pick up on it. And, you know, those (laughs) that weren't paying attention would just be like, it's just another part of the story. Uh, but it was definitely intentional and it definitely, it will be as, as time goes on and as the story develops, it'll become more and more important, um, getting closer to the end. But it's definitely, um, I guess that was kind of like a foreshadowed theme. And you can kind of pick up on it in the beginning of part three of the book, too. Uh, It's just start to realize how much power and how well connected these people are and kind of understand that it's not just basic human nature being put against other basic humans is actually a method to the madness, um, so to speak. And so as much as we don't like the villain or, you know, I, I try not to make him so much of a, I try to show a human aspect of him, but as much as we don't like the owner of the plantation, James Moore, that gives him an element to let you know that even he works for some, even he is a slave to someone else and to something else and is a part of something much bigger than any of them could ever imagine. Yeah. And what I loved, what really sticks with me, even as I'm listening to you talk about it, is that it's your book does this wonderful thing where it it illustrates systems of control, but it also hints at the idea that there are systems of control that we can see visibly 
and that they were allowed to occur for the time period that they were. But then there's also systems of control that are not quite so visible, that don't want to be known, let alone seen, let alone witnessed. And those systems of control are like so many others. And it's a question of how visible and invisible they are to us, how close we were looking. When you drop those moments in, my brain was just like 10 different clock wheels going in different directions. And I was just sort of listening like, okay, he's got my attention. I've been, you know, I, I, I know the things that I'm looking for and, and I'm well aware of the history you're talking about. For anyone who's studied the practices of the Masons and looks at Washington, D.C., and knows about how ley lines and maps and structures and the planning of that place went into play, how much it's like this great visible representation of what should be an invisible thing, but is visible if you're looking for it. You're talking about an invisible system of control, one that's just being hinted at. And as you said, one that some will recognize that they're looking for it, paying attention to it, but also is always there. And because right. it's always there, what it's doing in the, in the background, in the distance, in, while it's invisible, has an effect. And I love that you point out that for all of his towering presence for parts of the book, for so much of it, James Moore seems like he's the one in charge. And yet in those moments, you're made aware of the fact that he too is under somebody else's thumb. He is in a system and in some way he is oppressed by it he's he's controlled by it and he's just another cog in the machine you know he's yeah. he's part of what makes it work but it's not as visible as what you're showing in the visible moments right now but that it is a process that's always there always working in the background and <laughs> i love that you brought that up and and how much that's something we can look forward to seeing in the upcoming books and and how much of it's part of the story you're telling as well, especially because of what we were just talking about with Watchmen. Man, when you see it, you got to send me a message because I'd really like to hear your thoughts. I'm rewatching oh, it a second time. And <laughs> after reading your book, I'm going to be looking at it again with another fresh pair of eyes. So I uh, can't wait to hear your thoughts as well. You, you brought that up so tastefully. I, I really have to commend you for that because you're the first person that I feel like that have, uh, actually has noticed it um, oh wow <laughs> and sincerity like yeah that's yes good job oh sir. my pleasure man hey my my pleasure i i love great stories and i love all the pieces and you're you're really crafting something here you're weaving a wonderful narrative and when you uh, contacted me and let me know about it, I had no idea what I was getting when I got a copy of your book, but reading it, I, I really enjoyed it. I was moved. I'm, I'm really thankful I've had this time to sit and talk with you about it. You, you've done a great work, sir. Thank you. I, I just appreciate you having me on. Oh man, it's been my pleasure. Um, I can't think of a better way for us to wrap up. You've told us all the ways that folks can find you. I am going to ask you one final question, if you don't mind. And it's, it's part of a, are you familiar with the Proust interview? He was a philosopher, writer, um, and he's got this series of interview questions and they're supposed to tell you about who you are. And on television, the uh, TV show Inside the Actor's Studio Mm -hmm. um, he always asks a series of questions at the end. And it's the same question, but everybody always has different answers. Well, it's a long list of questions, and I decided to just pick one. And that's okay. the question I now ask of every guest. And I love the fact that you've already brought spirituality into our conversation, because I think this 
works really well with that. So the idea is this, um, simply put, at some point, all of us have an ending to our lives here on earth. And we all have a belief about what happens afterwards. So based on that, if you believe that anything happens after we die and that there's something waiting on the other side, what would it be? And would there be anyone there? And if they are, what would you like them to say? I guess first of all, I'd like to say I, over my years, I realized it's just so important that we really cherish the life that we have and we do the best that we can while we're here. Um, regardless if there is something after or not, that the way we treat each other now and the love that we give each other now is the most important thing, I think, in existence, you know, including the world around us. And if there is something on the other side, um, I pray that all my heroes, all the people that have died to make this world a better place are standing there and they tell me, welcome home. That's a great answer, man. I couldn't ask for anything more. And really the best thing about the answer is it's, it's yours. It's about what you know and what you perceive. And man, that's a, that's a perfect way for us to wrap up. Jaquintin, thank you so much for talking with me today about your book, about your experiences and about so much more we can look forward to. I've been really blessed by this conversation and I'm pretty sure that anybody else who's listening is going to feel the same way. Thank you. Thank you. Anytime. That brings us to the end of episode number 80 here on Storytelling with Seth. I'd like to thank you for joining me for this great conversation with Jaquintin Means. If for any reason you didn't get a chance to jot down all those ways to reach it, please look for those in the liner notes. And of course, to reach me, you can find me on Twitter as one more singleton, Instagram as Seth the Writer, although my dogs Bruno and Fiji are much cuter, and that is their handle. Or you can always just type my name, Seth singleton and the word story into a search engine let me know how you find me and more importantly if you think you have a story that should be here on storytelling with seth i'd love to hear about it talk more with you about it and figure out the best way to share it with others Till next time i can't wait to share my next story with you mm-hmm.